If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Psalm 119. Right in the, right in the middle of the Bible, you'll find Psalms and then Psalm 119. Let me say a prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us. So we don't walk in darkness or in confusion. We thank you that you direct our paths. We pray that you would help us now, that you would strengthen our souls, that you would draw us close, that you would be honored with us, that you would grow us in faith. Even now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. By the time you get to Psalm 119, you've crossed a couple of really neat psalms. Psalm 117 is the shortest, shortest chapter in the Bible. So Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 118 is the actual middle of the Bible. Somebody says, where's the middle? Psalm 118 is the middle. And then Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. So 176 verses is 22 uh, stanzas in Psalm 119. 22 stanzas, eight verses each. It is stylized Hebrew poetry. Every stanza uh, begins with the first letter. It's, um, it goes Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chetet, Yod, all the way down to the very end of the Hebrew alphabet. And each stanza, like if it begins with an Aleph, each verse in that stanza begins with an A. And the next stanza begins with a B. And every verse there begins with a B. So you have in Psalm 119 some of the most stylized poetry in the Bible that we just don't see. Almost all of the verses in Psalm 119, almost every single one speaks to God's Word. That's what Psalm 119 is about. Psalm 119 is the very first chapter that I preached through when it comes to doing expositional preaching. It took me 22 weeks to get through it because there are 22 stanzas. And if every stanza talks about God's Word, I got real redundant over the course of time when you're preaching Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verses 105 is something very familiar. And the text says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp to my feet, light to my path. That is what your word is. So the question for us then becomes, is the Bible reliable? It's an important question for us because we have so much at stake when it comes to our brand of Christianity. When we talk about being a Christian and where we think about how people are saved, when you go to work through different doctrines, we always land on the Bible. We are, in every way, people of the book. It's important for us when we come to church on a Sunday that we open up the Bible, that the preacher standing up there actually preaches a sermon from the Bible. Otherwise, we don't feel like that is actually a sermon. That's nothing more than uh, that preacher's opinions. We don't need more opinion. We want to hear the Bible. It's why we talk about our understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. We talk about um, the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture. But at the bottom of all of those things is the question, is it reliable? Because if it's not, 
If the Bible's not reliable, then there's no reason for us to have any of the beliefs that we have. So what I want to do tonight, uh, I've given you on your, note, on your note sheets 15 points. Took me a long time to come up with them. I, I have found that Wednesday nights are as difficult, if not more so, to get ready for than Sunday mornings. You know, I'm accustomed. Sunday mornings, uh, I study the Bible and then preach it. Right? I know how to do that. I've been doing it a long time. Wednesday nights, you're given a topic. This one was, was assigned by uh, Dr. Kyler Smith. So when you see him, he comes in, trip him or something. <laughs> you're assigned a topic, then you go and have to do all of the research, which is good for you to do. It's just, just harder. So what I decided to do tonight is just offer up 15 points, none of which standing alone would give you the answer, is the Bible reliable? Yes. All of them together, however, my estimation, all of them together then give us a picture of circumstantial evidence that says the Bible is indeed reliable. Let's start with the first one. Number one, I want you to think with me about the composition of the Bible. The composition of the Bible. The Bible is uh, really not just one book, it is many. It's 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. 66 books from 40 authors. You have three languages, Hebrew and then Greek and just a little Aramaic. You have three languages. The Bible is written over the course of 1,500 years. Those 40 authors, you think about them, 40 authors, they're priests and they're shepherds and they're kings. Some of them are scholars, others are fishermen, some are prophets. And you take those 66 books written over 1,500 years from 40 different authors and you have one central message. When you read the Bible, you, it's, it's remarkable that the composition from all over comes together under a unity that throughout the Old Testament you have quoted the throughout the New Testament you have quoting from the Old Testament and what you have is the story of God and his people how does God how does God work with his people how does he speak to his people how do people draw near to God is what the Bible is about if you put it in categories uh, you would put it in the categories of Creation, then the fall of man. So creation, then the fall. Read that pretty early on. And then after the fall of man, the story that you read from Genesis is the story of God pursuing. You might even call that redemption. You might say creation, fall, redemption. The story of the Bible is a story of God redeeming people, coming after people. It's the story of God's grace, redemption. And then you get to the very end, you have the category of consummation. So the Bible has one story, is creation, God is good, His creation is good. Man falls into sin, the fall of man. God in His goodness pursues, that's redemption. And then the end of the story is the new heavens and the new earth, in redemption, the composition of the Bible. It's good for us to think about the Bible, 66 books, 40 authors, over 1,500 years with one story. 
not just the composition of the Bible. Let's talk about the history. So how do we get it? I don't mean the English version. I don't even mean from the Protestant Reformation, which sort of unlocked the Bible. But, but go back. There was Christianity before the Protestant Reformation. So go back. How, how did we get the Bible? Well, from the very beginning, there had to be an eyewitness to creation. So the stories are passed down orally. We don't live in an oral society. We live in a society that looks at a screen or looks at a page. We read the stories or we watch them. We don't hear them. <clears throat> Adam, Adam and Eve. Adam was there, the dawn of creation. Adam would live long enough. Like if you want to draw connections, I've, I've done some connections in my, in my notes. Has to be passed down orally over the course of time. So Adam was there, had the first hand account of creation and the animals. Adam <clears throat> was alive during the time of a man named Methuselah. Y'all know that name because somebody's old as Methuselah. They say that because he lived longer than anybody else. So Adam was long enough to, was there enough to pass the stories to Methuselah. And then Methuselah would cross paths with Shem. This is why the uh, genealogies are important. And then Shem would be alive at the time of Jacob. Now Jacob is an important person because he is the representative of Israel. His name will be changed to Israel Jacob will, will be the people of Israel. Out of Genesis comes Exodus, and there is a man named Moses. And Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. And then over the course of time, you have the other authors uh, that give us the history and give us also the writings. And by the exile, by three or 400 B.C., the Old Testament canon is what's called. Canon means the measurement or the standard, the Old Testament is, is together. So it, it's much easier because we've had it much longer and it's been together much longer. The Old Testament, let's put that, that aside for a moment. What about the New Testament? New Testament is a little trickier. Jesus Christ comes on the scene, 30 or 30 AD, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and then the story of the church begins. About 10 years 10 to 15 years after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, that's when the stories are starting to be written down. So if you had to write on a timeline, you might say from 45 A.D. to 100 A.D., that's going to be the last, the Bible, the New Testament is written. From 45 to 100 A.D. And then from 100 A.D. to 200 A.D., the New Testament is read and collected in the churches. So all of, the, all of the New Testament was written by 90 A.D. That's John and Revelation. It's the last book written. So that's written by 100. It, and then these, these writings are collected in the churches from the year 100 to 200. From the year 200 to 300, there is some debate. There is... The, the, the writings are being examined and compared with other writings and make sure they're right. But by 300 A.D., 3 to 400 A.D., you had to com have complete agreement on the New Testament. You put the two together, you have the whole canon. The canon means, the word canon means standard. There was a standard that had to be met. 66 books are together. Have the history. I gave you just a quick 
history. Let's go to the criteria. What did it take to actually get into the Bible? What, what had to go on for the book of Matthew to be in the Bible? Or the book of Hebrews to be in the Bible? Or the book of 1 Peter? What had to happen? There are four criteria. I'm give them to you very quickly. In order for the book to be accepted into the Bible, uh, the first criteria is apostolicity. Apostle. Think of the word apostle. It had to be from an apostle. What that means is the books of the Bible had to either be written by an apostle or a close associate, close companion of an apostle. So it, that puts a really tight circle around what's allowed into the New Testament. The first criteria, is it from an apostle or one that is a close associate of an apostle? For instance, the book of Mark. We're going through that right now. Sunday mornings, Mark is obviously not an apostle, but Mark's writing, he's getting that from Peter. So he, that's, the, that's the connection. So it has to be connected in some way to an apostle. Here's the, uh, the next criteria for the New Testament. Antiquity. Antiquity. Basically, is it old? It had the date to the first century. You know that John was the last writer uh, in the Revelation, and that's around 90 or 95 A.D. or so. If it's beyond that, one of the standards, you meet the standard of antiquity. If it's past that, it was not allowed in the canon because then it becomes suspect. Okay, so you have apostolicity, and then you have antiquity, and the third word I would give you is the word orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. Already by the second century, you have the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Already, take, for instance, we went through the Apostles', the Apostles Creed last week. Already you have a creed. You have other little mini creeds in the Bible. You have a definition of what is Christianity and what is not Christianity and if there was a writing, even if the date was good, if it didn't match the orthodoxy of Christianity, had to, orthodoxy means it had to reflect the truth handed down, the position that was handed down by the apostles or Jesus himself. That's why the Apocrypha, um, Protestant Bible, would not have the Apocrypha in it, the criteria. Okay, what about the standards of, so how do we know that what we have is actually the same as what was written? That's a long time ago. What are the standards of authenticity? Like, how do we know it's the real thing? Like, some people might would say, okay, we believe that the, that the original, like, here's our doctrine of inerrancy. We believe the original writings, the original, penned by the author, we're inspired by God and are without error. What we have is obviously not the original. So then how do we know what we have is actually authentic and not some wild copy of something else? Well, a couple of ways. Let me preface it by saying, let me start by saying. 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. It's an important date for Christians, and especially when it, comes to, when it comes to how we view the Bible. 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered, there are almost a thousand manuscripts, writings. Those manuscripts 
were actually a thousand years older than what we had before 1947. And when you look at those manuscripts that we discovered that are a thousand years older than what we had before, they were so close. It's remarkable. You know, when I'm, I'm preaching in, in Mark and I come across the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the scribes seem to have such a, it gives us a bad rap and I even give it to them because they're questioning Jesus and they're with the Pharisees. But we owe so much to the scribes that meticulously copied down God's word over and over again, did it in such a way that you have an exact copy. Did you know that every book of the Old Testament was found in, in, at the Dead Sea Scrolls? Um, every book except Esther. Esther didn't make it. I think probably because God's not mentioned, so Esther wasn't allowed in. So she, she wasn't there, but every other book. And those manuscripts were 2,000 years old. Okay, put that information on the side. If you study history and philosophy... And you read, uh, especially ancient history, and you read the stories that you get from Julius Caesar. We get uh, Julius Caesar's writings. If he wrote uh, around 40 A.D. or 40 B.C., if that's when it happened, 2,000 years ago, what we have, we have 100 and, I don't know, 100 and, uh, 200, we have 251 copies of what Julius Caesar has written those 251 copies are a thousand years removed from when he wrote it. Okay, if that's the case, there are, there's a thousand years between what he wrote and what we have. So many things could happen. And yet, scholarship would receive Julius Caesar's writings as authentic. The Dead Sea Scrolls have taken the time frame and brought it down to, to B.C. to within a hundred years of the copies of the Old Testament. So close. Not only that, there are thousands of them. I'll give you another one. Uh, the writings of Homer. The Greek writings of Homer would be received as authentic and his is the same. Hundreds of years separate from the few copies we have the few copies we have of Homer in Greek are hundreds of years removed from the original and yet are received as authentic. We have what we, our sacred book, we have manuscripts that are, that are less than a hundred years removed from the original, thousands of them. And they match up with what you have in your Bible, translated, of course, into English. It's remarkable. When you think about the standards of authenticity that are given to, to text that are um, ancient, that are not the Bible, and then we bring that over to the standards of what we have as the Bible, it is remarkable. Like even those that are not Christians that don't believe the Bible would have to say what you have is at least 99% accurate. We would go ahead and press it to 100, but you'd have to recognize that it's accurate. Standards of authenticity. What about, the, what about the historicity? The historicity, like not just the history of the Bible, but, but the Bible speaks to history. 
Like what, what are the things there um, when you read it? One of the great developments in the last 150 years has been the science of archaeology. And most of the archaeologists that come out of a, will come out of a liberal theological school and go to the Middle East to dig with the intent of proving that the Bible is not right. And, and time after time, what happens is they dig enough and find something that just once again confirms what we knew from the Bible. They dug enough that they found the ancient town of Jericho. It's an actual place. Found Bethlehem. You can go there. You can go to Jerusalem, back off a little bit, and you'll find the city of David. It hadn't been long. They found the city of David. You can read First and Second Chronicles and Kings and see the city of David. They found uh, for a long time, people didn't believe that a man named Pontius Pilate actually exists until they found scraps of pottery that had his name, Pontius Pilate. The historicity of the Bible writes in a, in a time when Herod the Great, you can read all about Herod the Great, and what he did with Jerusalem, they found scraps that speak of Hezekiah. You can read in the, in the Bible and the setting, especially of the times of Jesus in the Gospels, and there you get a sense of the Roman rule. We can then step outside of the, of the Bible, look at history, and understand what, how the Romans rule. And it matches up with what the Bible says, matches up with crucifixion. Or the Romans are there. Why, if the Romans are there, is everything written in Greek? Because history tells us that Alexander the Great had come across there before the Romans did. So, so you have the historicity of the Bible. We, we speak of a worldwide flood. You can go to the Grand Canyon. If you don't believe in a creator, you believe in the Big Bang, you can have one way of describing that. If you believe in creation and a worldwide flood, you can see layers and stacks and fossils. You can, you can read outside the Bible. You can read about the downfall of Jerusalem. You come to the Bible. You can see the Bible's description of the downfall of Jerusalem. The, the historical events that happened in the Bible happened. The person and life of Jesus. The Bible presents that as the truth. Outside evidence has said, yeah, that's I mean, we don't need the outside evidence because we believe it's true, but it's, it's encouraging when you see it. The historicity of the Bible, the actual events in history that, that are described elsewhere, described in the Bible, are accurate. I'm going to give you another peg to drive in. That's the embarrassments in the Bible. So if you're writing a book and you're trying to promote your hero, you don't want to show the downsides of your hero. You, you don't want to show the way that he or she has fallen. When you read the Bible, one of the, the marks of it actually being truth is that it's unvarnished. When you read the story of God's people, God's chosen people, Jacob, go read the story about Jacob. He's a liar. Jacob's terrible. Moses He's a stutterer and a murderer. One, you can't help the other. He was mean. Killed somebody. David, my goodness, David. David, an adulterer and a murderer. 
The story of Jonah. Jonah, uh, I'm going to use it again. Jonah's story again. Go read it. It's a, it's a strange prophecy. Jonah runs from God. It finally reluctantly does it because God forces him to go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh, preaches. God miraculously saves the town of Nineveh. Jonah gets up on a hill to watch it burn. He's waiting on the wrath of God to fall when it doesn't happen. Jonah is mad because God didn't burn those people up. And the, the story ends like that. Jonah's not a great guy. When you read the story of, of Jesus and, and his followers, when you read the story of Peter, his closest associate, besides John, would deny him three times. You, you know that story well. The, the gospel writers write that story about their leader, Peter. Or Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Paul killed Christians before he was saved. Now, that's, that's not how you want to prop up a hero. And the Bible tells the story of all of Jesus' male disciples. Look at the distinction now. All of Jesus' male disciples deserted him. His closest friends denied him. If you're trying to make the point you should follow Jesus, that is not something you include in the story. Look at the downside. The embarrassments of the Bible speak to the veracity, the authenticity to answer the question, is it reliable? What about, uh, number seven, what about the... Am I going too fast for y'all? I feel like, a, like I drank a Red Bull or something. I'm talking real fast. Am I talking too fast now? Breaking out a little bit of a sweat. I uh, wore a suit today, and usually this suit has a vest with it. And when you're wearing a vest, so the rule is when you're wearing a vest, you don't button the coat. Okay? So guys, if you wear a vest with a suit, don't button the coat. Well, if you don't button the coat very much, you don't realize if you happen to be expanding. And then when you go to <laughs> button the coat, it was all like, man, there's, some, there's more man than there is coat here today. So that's why I keep fooling with my, my coat. What does the Bible talk about? Number seven, it's view of what about the view of women in the Bible? It's odd that, uh, it's odd that Christianity gets this weird description of its view of women because from the beginning, when you read the Bible, if a Christian woman was converted out of paganism, she, if she, she was not a Christian before, then she comes to Christ and is brought into the body of Christ, into the church. When a Christian woman converted out of pagan and a pagan society, she was freed from so many demeaning practices and attitudes. When she joined the church, her life changed. Why? I'll give you a a couple, uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. In Luke chapter 8, you can turn there if you'd like. Uh, Christine, I think you'll probably have it on. Oh, you know, there it is. Christine is so fast. Luke chapter 8, let me read it to you. <clears throat> Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities... Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, 
and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now that's not, when this is written in ancient society, you're trying to make a point. You're not going to include how this movement is made up of a whole lot of women disciples. And the way Luke writes it, he says that, that these women are being radically saved, Satan's being cast out, and they're brought into the fold. Many of them, because I'm guessing that uh, the wife of Chuzza there, if that's Herod's household manager, he probably makes a pretty good living, and they're, they're, they're giving money, they're providing for the ministry. One of the things it tells us the Bible is, is can be trusted because of the way it talks about, about women. You go, we're going to get there Easter, Easter Sunday, the first at the tomb to speak of the resurrection. Women. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it's a radical Christian ethic. It's a radical Christian ethic for the time. It doesn't feel radical now. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ. What a remarkably radical thing to say. It speaks to the authenticity of the Bible. I won't go there now, but Ephesians chapter 5, if you go and read and you think about the contrast of, of the society, the pagan society you've come out of, you've now come to Christ, and you're hearing Paul talk about marriage. Marriage used to be, if you're outside of Christ, demeaning to a woman. Now you're inside of Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that, that husbands are to love their wives as Jesus Christ loved the church. And the way Jesus did that was he sacrificed himself completely for the betterment of the church. And Paul says, now I have a new ethic for you that you're in Christ. That woman is to be loved like that. Speaks to the authenticity of the Bible, the Bible's view of, of women. It goes on and on. You can go and read in Proverbs, or you can read in, in 1 Peter that speaks of the honor. And all of that is completely radical for the day. And to write that, if you're trying to win converts, that's not how you did it. Speaks to the authenticity. Let me give you something else. What does the Bible say? Uh, the eighth one, <clears throat> I spoke about this a minute ago. I probably should have entitled uh, this one better, but I was rushing. Uh, the confusing resolution. What I mean by that is that if you're writing a story, you want to have a beginning, some exciting part, and a conclusion. And we even know that like in a, in a song. When we're listening to a song, we need the song to have resolution, to end nicely. A lot of times in the Bible, that's not what happens. I already mentioned Jonah. The story of Jonah, go and read it. It's just a few, a few chapters. And the story of Jonah ends with this open-ended. Like what happens in Nineveh? What happens to Jonah? What happens to the plant that went over him? Is there some resolution there? Or uh, we studied them here earlier. The, the two books that I thought of today when I was thinking of this was Ezra and Nehemiah. Go and read those stories. Ezra and Nehemiah, they go together at the same time. Coming back from exile, Ezra is the priest, Nehemiah is the statesman, and neither of those stories ends really well. I mean, Ezra just ends with wondering in the middle of this folks that had married in, intermarried and didn't get it resolved. 
Nehemiah brings about these great things. We'll build the wall. The people had a mind to work. So we pull that out. And it's a great thing to pull out. But when you get to the end of his story, they weren't staying true. He's, he's had to go into just a madman. He's pulling people's hair out. He's wrecking somebody's room. They were staying in the temple. And he gets to the end. And he just says, Lord, remember me for good. And it just stops. We don't know the rest of the story. If you're writing a story to convince, you, you, you bring some, some resolution. Proverbs 25, verse 2 says this. It is, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. i give you one more in verse 9. Um, not verse 9. And number 9 is, I don't know if I should have put this one down or not, but it, it, I was struck by it. There are some scientific curiosities in the Bible. Something called the hydrological, hydrological cycle. Hydrological, how water works. How the sun beats down on the ocean and water evaporates, goes into the sky. And there, once it's there, forms thunderclouds and the rain drops back down and, and goes back into, is a cycle, a hydrological cycle. I, I found it fascinating. Job, let me, do you have Job 36? Christina, do you have that? Yeah. So also, but before I read it, also I'm, I'm in Job right now in my quiet time uh, in the morning, devotional. Got to have a couple of cups of coffee and read that in the morning. Uh, especially if Bill Dad Elphaz is so far, if one of those guys are speaking. Uh, but they're, they're, they're talking about going into a mine and pulling out jewels where people can't see. Uh, there's a lot in Job that's not the storyline that gives you these indicators, and this is one of them. By the way, this is before people knew how the system works. That's why it's amazing. For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. So you, you can read those two and you, you see that somehow before it's even discovered scientifically, there's a description of the hydrological cycle. The same is true in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. With an understanding of how water works. That's important because one of the things that separates those of us that would be called Christians and those are not is the Bible's claim on resurrection. Resurrection. So we're running toward Palm Sunday. That's this, this Sunday. I'll preach John chapter 12 this Sunday. And then the following Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And we preach that as the truth. That's going to be important for us, for those that are in, inside and, and out. And really the dividing line is the resurrection. And we bring to the story of the resurrection, certainly we believe the Bible's true, but we can bring historical references and say, Roman soldiers killed Jesus, and if Roman soldiers know how to do anything, they actually know how to kill. They're really good at that. Not only that, when you see the disciples after the resurrection, the disciples, the disciples, Peter would, James would, eventually Paul, who would see a late a resurrected Jesus, they would defend to the death the resurrection. 
Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the resurrection happened. That does mean that they believed that it happened. And we're talking about eyewitnesses. So you have a picture of the resurrection. And one of the sort of the philosophical things you've got to ask if you actually believe in a God. So you believe in a God and a, create, and a creator. Let's say you'll, you'll walk that far with me. If there is a God that created the universe, if that's true, if you'll accept that as the truth, then you can't actually exclude bodily resurrection. If you believe that, that there is a God that created the universe, you believe that, then that in itself demands that you believe at least there's a possibility for bodily resurrection. And then we believe the Bible gives us the pictures of that. We think there's, there's evidence that tells us that the, the Bible is indeed reliable. What then does the Bible actually say about itself? Here's where I'm going to give you a few passages. Because I don't, I don't want to just prop up an, an apologetic. We are people of faith. We are not just trying to be convinced by way of apologetics. We're people, ultimately, it will come down to do you actually believe it or not. But it's nice to have some of the affirming things around us. So now what does the Bible actually say about itself? Numbers chapter 23, uh, verse 19. I want to read maybe even a little more than that. Um, let me flip here in my new Bible. Roman, uh, Numbers chapter 23. It's the story of Balaam, and he takes up his discourse. 23, 18 and following. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So, so very early in the writings of Moses is a statement, God speaks and he'll follow through. You can trust what he says because he follows through. Or you might go to uh, Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, the, the words of the Lord are pure. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace or on the ground purified seven times. Or let's go to the New Testament. That's where all the fun is uh, when it comes to talking about the Bible. In the New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, what does Paul talk about and say about Scripture. Look what he says. <clears throat> that all Scripture, which is remarkable because Peter will talk about Paul's writings as Scripture. And Paul says, all Scripture, where do we get it? It's breathed out by God. That's our doctrine of inspiration. That's why we believe uh, in plenary verbal inspiration that God worked through men's personality and he inspired every word of them to write. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is good for teaching. This is what we do on Sundays. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, so this is the Bible speaking of itself, but since we believe it's true, or 1 Peter chapter 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Ah, that's not the one I wanted. I'm sorry. John chapter 10, verse 35. I told you I was working real fast today. Do you have John 10? Yeah, John 10, verse 35. If he, this is Jesus. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, then the scripture cannot be broken. Maybe my favorite. Do you have Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? This is maybe my favorite. When it speaks of how God speaks, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke, he spoke to our fathers. How did he do it? By the prophets. But in these last days, now here's the gospels, the New Testament. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So, so there's a picture of Old Testament, New Testament inspiration. How does God speak? which gives us some parameters to run on. Especially when you start getting into the squirrely world of how you hear God speak. This is important for us because if, if, if you say God told me something, you actually legitimately can make that up yourself. It could be anything. But since we believe that God speaks through His Word, the way we hear God speak is to read the Bible out loud. That's how you know God is speaking, because it happens to be God's Word. What are the claims of the Bible about itself? You know what's fascinating? There are hundreds of them in the Bible, the prophecies that are fulfilled. I mean, you could go through it. The, the problem with talking about fulfilled prophecies Sometimes you might say, well, is that really a fulfilled prophecy? Let me give you just four or five of them. I'm from the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin. Now, I think this is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Whoever even heard of that? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So let's go to the Gospels. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 25. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So you have Isaiah spoke it before Matthew was even a thought. Hundreds of years later, Matthew records for us what happened. It's a direct fulfillment of what was written. Micah chapter 5, Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, and you know the name gives it away, you know how this is going to be fulfilled. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Prophesied, Micah, fulfilled in the New Testament. I'll give you just, um, or just two more. One I found 
not found. I've been studying John chapter 12, and I came across it, and I knew I was getting ready for this lesson. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And John says in John 12 that Jesus rode in to fulfill that. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it just as it is written, and then he quotes Zechariah 9. It's remarkable to me that you have prophecy hundreds of years later, direct fulfillment. One more, one more. Psalm 22. Do you know Psalm 22? Do you have Psalm 22? Okay, Psalm 22. Join, put it up there for me, please. Here is Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Y'all know that. And I don't have to go to those scripture. Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before, without any concept. I mean, crucifixion wasn't even invented. And here, if you go and read the whole psalm, the whole psalm speaks to the crucifixion of Jesus in John chapter 19. The, what, that's one of the things that, that reminds me of the reliability. Is it reliable? Just look at some of the direct. And just by way of, of helping you study, when you're reading the Bible, at the bottom, you'll see all those little numbers and letters. Uh, that, that apparatus at the bottom of your Bible, it will show you these scriptures. You can do what I'm doing right now. You could do that yourself. Just by, if you have a Bible that's a study Bible, even if it's not, if it has the apparatus, you can do this because you'll see how scripture goes together. All right, let me um, go a little further. That's the prophecy. What about the people that wrote the Bible? I'll just pick a couple. What about the author? What are the authors of the books? What did they think they were doing? When they, their view of what they were doing. Well, I have just a couple. I'll give you one on the front end of the gospel and the other on the back end. Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. This is Luke, and this is what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of us, the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Go ahead. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke saw himself as writing an accurate account of what has happened so that his friend Theophilus could be convinced that Jesus is indeed Lord. It's a historical account. Or and you get to the, to the end of the book of, of John. John chapter 21. John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. It's a weird way to talk about yourself. That's what he's saying. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's an eyewitness account. It's written by a man that was there. What was Jesus' view? Okay, so let's go to the Lord Jesus. We talked about everybody else. How did he see the Bible? What did he think of the Bible? Shouldn't we think like he does of the Bible? 
John chapter 5, verse 39. What did Jesus say? John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness of me. Here is Jesus saying that the Old Testament is getting the world ready for him. It's re that's a remarkable claim. That's where you say either, either Christ is Lord or, or he's a lunatic. That the Bible is talking about him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. You know the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish. I'm not doing away with the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I see myself as the one who brings them full. That's why I'm preaching on Sunday mornings and I talk about Jesus and his earned righteousness. What is he doing? Fulfilling the law. Certainly he died on the cross for our sins. Yes, he also lived perfectly for us. The whole thing goes together. Or, or Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 21. When Jesus speaks and says to them, the scripture today, the scripture has been fulfilled. And you're here. It's in the synagogue. This is Jesus and his claim. Or if you go to Matthew chapter 4, uh, there's several verses. And when, when in Matthew 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, and what does he do to fight off temptation? He uses the scripture. And he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 7, he'll say it again. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Uh, verse 10, he'll say it again. It is written. And every time he's saying that, he's quoting the Bible. Here's the Lord Jesus and his understanding of the Bible, that it's true, that it points to him, that is useful to fight off temptation. So, we've said all of that. What is the effect? If we think the Bible is, 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 is powerful, what is the effect on society? What's happened? If you go back several hundred years all the way to the decline of the Roman Empire. The fourth century uh, in Rome, an emperor is raised up, Constantine, he's in fact, in, in England, when he's crowned emperor, York, Constantine legalizes Christianity, and then it's on. The church takes on a different feel and a different tone. But with that comes the spread of Christianity all throughout what used to be the Roman Empire, then becomes Europe. Europe is Christianized by the 5th and 6th century, especially the continent. And then England is Christianized after that. The Anglo-Saxons become Christians after Charlemagne and the Gauls are, are Christianized. And he presses, he presses Christianity further and further up and even to the Danes, uh, up into the Norsemen. They, they become Christianized. And Europe and England are Christian. That Christianity comes across the ocean to the United States, America. And with that comes the understanding of, of British common law, our understandings of how law works. What the Bible does is it brings the understanding of monotheism, it brings the rule of law to a society. It, it brings um, a universal standard. I'm not saying it Christianizes everybody. I'm saying it gives us a standard. This book is, it becomes a standard to live by. It promotes, it promotes society and trust and fairness and individualism and respect. And gives us objective truth. Even if you're not a Christian, you, you benefit from a society that's built on. This is what it's done to Western civilization. 
It's what the Bible did. You don't have Western civilization. That's not enlightenment. You don't have Western civilization without at least somewhere at the bottom of it is the, the Bible. Which we are thankful for. I'm thankful for law courts, laws. I'm thankful that God uses laws and common grace to restrain evil. I'm thankful that there'll be prosecution of what happened in Nashville. There'll be talk. I'm thankful today I looked at my window, you know, the terrible events that happened, and we'll pray for them before we go today at Covenant School in Nashville. I looked at my window. I just happened to stand up and look out, and there's 11 police cars in our, in our entrance. 11. It's like, oh gosh. Well, they just, they're, they're chasing a man that stole a car and he happened to turn in to our entrance. Uh, I asked the police officer, could you tell them not to do that again? <laughs> Scared us to death. I'm but I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the rule of law. And, and if there's a crime per perpetrated, there's an answer. Underneath all of that, Western civilization, it's not perfect, but underneath it is a book. What happens when you lose that, you, t you take that out. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about, you hear people talk about, took prayer out of schools, took God out of schools. Look, you'll never take prayer out of school. There's, as long as there's a math test, prayer will be in school. You're not taking prayer out of school. But, but to, I know what they mean is, is to pull that. Once you pull the Bible out of a society as its foundation, whether it's Christian or not, I'm talking about just being Christian. I just mean the book. You have a reversal. Uh, have a reversal of what is considered right and what is considered wrong. It's a complete reversal. It's just a complete flipping over. You have an abandoning, abandoning of common sense. What is a common sense thing? What was the common sense to call a boy or a girl? Without being political, just, just the common sense. If you take the Bible out, what happens is you no longer actually have the foundation for subjective truth. Not, uh, I mean, objective truth. Objective truth is this object gives us the truth. Subjective truth is that what's true for me might not be true for you. Take the Bible out, you no longer have objective. You no longer have objective truth. You remove the Bible from a society, and, and we're living in that. You can trace it, burned over. You can trace it from the continent in Europe all the way across France, the French Revolution. You can trace it into the Enlightenment and what hap has happened in, in England with the Anglican Church. You can trace it over to where the First Great Awakening was in the northeastern part of the United States and how the, now that's a burned over up in Canada. And we're feeling the effects of it even now. We've been real slow to give up the ghost on it, but it's, it's upon us. What happens? When, when, there are, when there is a non-binary view of the sexes. It's when the Bible's taken out. So we're living in that period. What then do we do? We go back to the Bible that we trust. We read what it says about a good and sovereign God that has placed us here at this point in history to, to live out our lives in the joy of Christ and to speak of the good things of God, to, to speak to our neighbors about the truth, that there's a better, there's something better, that there is a truth. We don't put our heads in the sand. We don't stand and shout and make signs and curse people. We bring the gospel because that's what the Bible teaches us. 
This book that has been jerked out of society hasn't been taken from us. And we live by it and we love it and we, we hope to point people to the Christ of this book. The question is, is, there, is the Bible reliable? Yes, it's reliable because it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be encouraged today. Keep your heart and mind in the Bible. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the good things you give us. We thank you for the word of God in a language we can understand that gives us clarity on life and all that pertains to salvation. We thank you that our souls are fed by your word. We thank you that you've given us enough freedom even still to preach and believe the Bible. God, we pray that you wake us up tomorrow morning and enough time to spend some time in your word. That you bring us back here Sunday to, to joyfully worship. May we live out our Christian life in front of people. God, we pray for the families that have lost three little children, three adults. Covenant School and Covenant Presbyterian Church. That pastor whose daughter was killed. God, we pray that grace upon grace would be with them in the midst of this, this hard providence. May the gospel be real, more real than it's ever been to that church and that school. And may Nashville see people that suffer and weep and yet they don't weep as those who don't have hope. May we live like that. May they be close to our minds and hearts even this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.